Good morning, church. It's a little bit rainy out there, or at least it's going to, and uh, within an hour or so, hopefully we'll be able to get us out of here before it actually starts to come pounding in on us this holiday weekend. Um, but if it is projected to rain, we might find ourselves this weekend actually watching a little more television than we anticipated, um, kind of hoping on the holiday we might have more than that. Um, but anyway, as I uh, talked this morning, I thought we might go through a little quiz to see if these are some of the television shows that maybe you've watched um, on your own. And I'm just kind of wondering, too, if you can detect what all of these television programs have in common. Okay, so the, here we go with our list. Flea Market Flip, Fixer Upper, Wheeler Dealer, Fast and Loud. Can I get a shout out there? There you go. Superhero Movies, Disney Fairy Tales, and okay, here's your big clue, Transformers. All right, what do they all have in common? transformation. That's right. There's a before and there's an after in these shows. And sort of like Cinderella after her fairy godmother comes and does her magic with her wand. Oh, there we go again. <laughs> this happened first service where my mic cut out. So just wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. Okay, this is a reenactment because John was like, okay, I'm going to go find the handheld for her. And then it popped on. So... What? Oh, there I am. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> All right. Pulling us back to center here. Um, my favorite transformation show, though, is What Not to Wear. Okay, like, it, no surprises there, okay? Um, it stars Stacey London and Clinton Kelly, and they help regular people like me who are lacking in fashion sense to kind of try to figure out what to wear. And wh what happens is, is your friends or your family, they nominate you to be on this show. So apparently it really shows that you don't know what to wear. And they follow you around with a hidden camera for like two weeks. And so as they're following you around, they catch you in all of your fashion foibles. And then at the end of those two weeks, they corner you somewhere public. And uh, they offer you, though, a $5,000 shopping spree um, on two conditions. First of all, what? Yes, you have to throw away everything in your closet. Everything, your, every stitch, you've got to throw it away. And then the second thing is that when you go shopping with their $5,000, you have to shop by their rubric. They're going to tell you what to wear and what looks good on you. And the fun thing is, is at the end of the show, after the hair and the makeup and all that, it is so fun to see the transformation of the before and after. So that's my favorite show. Um, well, let me ask you this question this morning, though. Does it really matter what we wear? Like, does it really matter what you wear to church? Does it really matter? Does God care what we wear to church? Well, last week, John began to unpack Colossians chapter 3, and it's a story of, when you get to this part in Colossians, Paul had some directions on what not to wear. So we're going to look at that this morning. Um, and Paul had never visited the church in Colossae, so um, the interesting thing is that there were false teachers at the church, and so Epaphras goes to hunt Paul down, and he finds him in jail. 
And he tells him what's going on in the church. And Paul's letter then to the church in Colossae begins with encouragement. He's wanting them to go back to the basics, if you will, like the little black dress or the blue jeans of their faith. And he first reminds the Colossians who Christ is. And he spends a couple chapters doing this. But I just want to hit some highlight verses. One is that Christ is the visible likeness of the invisible God. He is the head of his body, the church. He's the source of the body's life. Christ is the firstborn son who was raised from death in order that he alone might have first place in all things. And then Paul reminds them who they are in light of who Christ is. And he says, in Christ, the believers have been transformed into faithful saints. They're fruitful, reconciled, forgiven, holy, blameless, above reproach. They're filled in Christ Jesus, buried with Christ Jesus, and made alive in Christ Jesus. And So my question this morning is, what does it mean to be the church? The key verse, I think, um, in these first couple chapters of Colossians is found in 2.6, and it says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in the establishment of your faith, just as you were taught. Paul, who loves the body of Christ, he wants to make sure that this church that he has never met in person is on the right track. And so he goes and gives the church directions on what it means to be the church. And I think we have some things possibly to learn from these words. My question this morning is, are we at Countryside on the right track? Are we being who we're supposed to be? Are we doing what we're supposed to do? Are we the church? And I just would ask you this morning if you would just bow your heads and pray with me as I begin to unpack this uh, so that we can ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us about what he wants us to hear. So would you please pray with me? Holy Spirit of God, some of us uh, have come this morning and we just need reminding. Others of us really need encouragement. And then some of us, Lord, might even need correction. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would speak because your servants here at Countryside, we're listening. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Well, last week, John delivered uh, chapter 3. He started uh, with verse 1, and he talks about um, Paul's priorities for the church. And his first priority is, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. And in order to do that, we kind of first need to examine the laundry list of familiar sins that Paul says that we should put off. And John went through those last week. And this is just more than peeling off your dirty old sweat clothes, you know, after you've had a workout. This is more like you have been juggling uranium and you, it's toxic and you need to go bury it somewhere in the backyard and put signs all over it to stay away. Because he says in verse 5, of chapter 3, put to death. This is kind of a good news, bad news scenario, by the way, this morning. And so we're going to start with the bad news, all right? It says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, 
impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. These are all things, by the way, that affect our mind, and then they find their way out in our bodies. And not only that, he he not only picks on that, but he also then goes on, the things that affect your mind, they also come out in your speech. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice. I'm in verse 8 if you're following along. Slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Again, these are things that we say. And why is the believer to put all of these off? Why does the church need to get rid of these things and put them to death? It's because they're not befitting those who are in Christ Jesus. Like the woman who was yelling and gesturing in road rage out her car window and as uh, she drove down the street and after being pulled over and taken into the police station, the officer found himself having to apologize to her. I'm sorry, ma'am. When I arrested you, it was for a stolen vehicle. Well, it, it turns out the car really is yours. I just didn't think it was because of all the Christian bumper stickers that you had on the back. Yeah, they just got it over there. (laughs) You have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So what does it mean to be made in the image of God, after the image of our creator. The phrase is imago Dei in Latin. What does that mean? Well, we have to go back to the very beginning of God's intention toward people for us to answer this question. So I bring us back to Genesis chapter 1. And at creation, God said in verse 26, let us make mankind in our image. Now, our is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So God is really having this conversation within himself, the Godhead. And he says, let us make mankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the livestock and all the earth and over every crawling thing that crawls on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And after creating them, God declares what? They're not only good, but he says of man and woman, they are very good. In verse 31, he sets them apart. He wants the reader to know that they are different from all of creation. Here he affirms both men and women and the outstanding quality that they have of being made in God's image. Our worth, therefore, is connected to our creator. If God is of great and inestimable worth, then human beings made in his image must be of value too. You have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty, says the psalmist of us. So how are we to treat people? You know, what are the implications of Imago Dei, the fact that we're created in God's image? What are the implications? And Dr. Art Lindsley says, how we treat people is an indication of how we value God. If you want to know how someone values God, watch and see how they treat other people. 
Even though Paul had never met that church in Colossae, because each person was made in the image of God, they were worth his attention and his concern. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, but especially to those who belong to the family of God. Grudemann puts it this way, Every single human being, no matter how much the image of God is marred by sin or illness or weakness or age or any other disability, still has the status of being in God's image and therefore must be treated with the dignity and respect that is due to God's image bearer. This has profound implications for our conduct toward others. It means that people of every race deserve equal dignity and rights. And it means that elderly people and children yet unborn deserve full protection and honor as human beings. As a freshman in college, I was introduced to the concept of designer labels, you know, um, Gucci purses and Calvin Klein jeans. And these labels set some of the people on campus apart from others of us who couldn't afford to dress like that. And I just got to thinking, what labels do we assign to people today? What creates barriers between us? What prevents us from seeing others as image bearers of God and therefore infinitely valuable? There is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised. I'm in verse 11 of chapter 3 that Paul says, There is no barbarian, no Scythian, no slave-free, but Christ, Christ is all and in all. These were the divisions of Paul's day. They were grouping people by background, nationality, color, language, social standing, caste. Sound familiar? And he's telling them that there is no room for these labels since they cause division in the church. And they are to bear the image of God. All of them bear the image of God. And there must be mutual welcome and respect, therefore, among all the people of God. These distinctions have become irrelevant in Christ. They're important, but they're ultimately a denial of the creation of humankind in the image of God. That is to be our standard when we label people, when we look at others. Our standard is that this is someone who is created first and foremost in the image of God. As God's image bearers, Paul encourages the church to put off the old self and its practices and to put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Let's go back for a minute to my favorite show, um, What Not to Wear. And when they go on their three-day, $5,000 shopping spree, they try on several 
outfits in a dressing room full of mirrors. I mean, I think we've all been there. Uh, Even you men, I'm sure you've been in a dressing room with lots of mirrors. And the first day, the candidate, you know, they stand in front of that mirror and they try really hard to remember what the host told them to buy. They have a rubric. They're supposed to pick some clothes out based on what they've been told. And inevitably, they get a few things right, but usually they blow it and they come home with stuff that they shouldn't have bought. And so on the second day, Stacy and Clinton have to swoop in and they have to remind them um, of their personal shopping rubric. And so as they stand all together before this wall of mirrors trying stuff on, um, Stacy and Clinton ask them really important questions. Things like, does this fit? Does this color look good on me? Is it appropriate for work? What message am I sending when I wear these clothes? The outfits that pass the rubric get purchased. And scripture, scripture is like a mirror. It says, James tells us, but don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it is like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself and then you go away and you forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and you do what it says, and you don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. Our spiritual mirror is the word of God. His Holy Spirit is seeking to clothe us with righteous living, and we sometimes choose the wrong outfit for a child of God. Sort of like wearing dirt. Uh, dirty work coveralls to a wedding or a tank top to the Alaskan Iditarod. Instead, the believer is to put on, in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, a whole new wardrobe. And Paul stands them in front of this wall of mirrors so that they can see the appropriateness of their actions toward one another who are made in the image of God. So his list of godly attributes here as we unpack them in Colossians isn't necessarily complete, but like Mark Twain said, if it ain't ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me, it's the parts that I do understand. So this morning, let us be reminded that we are God's chosen. We are his holy ones. We are God's beloved And so we need to ask ourselves, are the following items found in our wardrobe here at church? Are they in your wardrobe? Are they in my wardrobe? And this morning, I want us to look at this as a positive list. Um, By the way, this particular passage, as we start at verse 12 in Colossians chapter 3, this was our wedding passage when John and I were married. And it would be really easy as a new bride for me to go through this list that we're about to unpack and think, check, check, yeah, I got that, yeah, I was nice, you know, I was kind to him, whatever. And and just to think about it that way. But instead, I would invite us this morning um, to be prayerful as we go through this list and just listen for the one or two items on this list that shimmer for you. What is it maybe that God is trying to bring to your attention that may need to uh, be added into your wardrobe closet this morning? Something that he wants to fit you with and that as you wear that, you will walk as a child of God. 
The first thing he tells us to put on in uh, chapter 3, verse 12, is compassionate hearts. Compassionate hearts. Did you know that the word nice is not even in the Bible? Really, I, I looked it up. Save yourself the bother. It is not there. Nowhere are believers ever told to be nice. Instead, however, they are told to have an intense mercy and an intense benevolence towards others which wells up from within the seat of our passions. In other words, we are to have compassionate hearts. We're to feel what others feel. You know, when I take a spiritual gifts inventory, mercy is always at the bottom of my list. Um, it's the thing that I struggle with the most as in identifying with. So I know that when I have compassion for somebody, and I know that when I'm reaching out to them, that is God's Holy Spirit at work in me, dressing me in appropriate garb because I just don't have it in me. And perhaps that might be you too. Maybe you sense that God clothes you with his compassion for others. The next thing that Paul wants us to put on as the church is kindness. Kindness is moral goodness in action. It involves integrity and it involves doing the right thing even when no one else is looking. Does that word shimmer for you? Again, just think, what's shimmering for you? Humility is the next thing we're to put on. And humility is a right opinion of oneself. You know, remember the story of Goldilocks and everything was a little too much or a little too little? And, you know, you just want to get just right. You want it to hit it just right. We don't want to have, you know, this lowly opinion of us, nor should we have too high of an opinion and not be humble. But instead, God says, no, have the right opinion of yourself, and that is true humility. The next on our list of things to put on is gentleness. Um, other translations have meekness. I'm just going to unpack them both because it's the same Greek word. But gentleness means mildness of disposition. It's an inward wrought grace of the soul whose exercises are first and chiefly toward God. In other words, we don't argue with God. We accept what he gives us without resistance. Let me give you an example. Did you know the human mind can think of uh, literally eight thoughts a second. And how many of us have ever been faced with a decision? You know, we want, we're going to say something or we're going to do something. And we just, we know the right thing to do or we know the right thing to say, but we just don't want to. And so we pause and we have this conversation in our heads and it happens in one second, believe me. And we can come up with three or four different reasons why we're not going to do it why we're just going to hold to our hold our ground and we have all that conversation in our head and we resist God's spirit we resist him and we say nope not going to do it your way gentleness would say there's no guile in our relationship with God that the holy spirit we don't even have that conversation it doesn't happen the holy spirit just immediately takes over and we're able to live into what God wants us to do the word mercy is used here, too, in other translations, or, I'm sorry, meekness. And I just want to give the example of Jesus being meek as God. He is God incarnate. He calms the waves. He raises people from the dead, and he's hanging on the cross. And he could call 10,000 angels 
at his disposal as he's being taunted by the Pharisees. And what does Jesus do? He remains meek. Meekness is power in control. Power under control. He could have done a lot of things, but instead he chose forgiveness and long-suffering. He was meek. He put his power under control. Another thing that we could put on, maybe this is shining or shimmering for you this morning, that would be patience. That's bearing with one another. Putting up with each other's irritations and shortcomings and immaturity for extended periods of time. You know, someone once told me, do not pray for patience. Because if you pray for patience, you inevitably get an opportunity to practice it. So instead, their advice to me was pray for grace. Pray that you would be a gracious person toward people who irritate you or toward situations that are really frustrating you and ask God to fill you with his grace. Because you know that those opportunities to practice patience will inevitably come. But what do we do if we have complaints against each other? And Paul addresses that here. They must have had that issue at their church, otherwise he wouldn't address it. If we have complaints with one another, isn't our natural inclination, and I'm just going to say it right now, girls, this is ours. Um, We have an inclination to talk about others when we are irritated with them. Do we not? We want to gossip about them. But to the church in Philippi, Paul cautioned, do all things without grumbling or complaining. And this he said while he was in chains in prison. Otherwise, the image that we portray of God when we grumble and when we complain becomes distorted, like a funhouse mirror. All of a sudden, we don't represent the true nature of God when we complain against one another. And you may say, because I do, I'm just venting. I'm just venting, just getting the words out, that's all. But I really agree with Norm Wright's uh, interpretation of this when he said, words do not merely convey information or let off steam. They change. They change situations and relationships, often irrevocably. They can wound as well as heal. And like wild plants blown by the wind, hateful words can scatter their seeds and far and wide, giving birth to more anger wherever they land. My theology professor used to say, your words create a world in which others must live. Your words create a world in which other people must live. And then lastly, what if, we, what if we're blowing it? <laughs> what if the church is struggling to be the church? Of course, Paul tells them, forgive one another. As the Lord forgave you, Jesus himself being the ultimate example. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. And yet, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So above all these things, Paul tells the church, put on love, which binds everything together. Like threads hold a garment together, so love holds the church together. And did you know that, um, that thread in a garment is actually only about one one-thousandth of the weight of that garment? But actually it carries more than half of the responsibilities for its performance. 
the ancient texts of the world, if you were to read all of the other books of all of the other religions, they have absolutely no equivalent to love. Agape love, God's kind of sacrificial love, it's not in there. You can look for it and you will not find it. The closest that you can come to it is in the Old Testament texts, the Jewish texts, and they have something in there that is called, uh, it's the center of their thought, it's the center of who they are as God's people, the Jews, and it is called the Shema. It is their most sacred teaching, which every practicing Jew has recited every single morning for millennium. And it goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. And it was Jesus the true Imago Dei, the image of the invisible God, God in the flesh, who boldly and with authority added to the Shema the importance of loving one another when he said, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus insisted that the love of God is shown through loving other people. They are inextricably bound. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you are indeed called in one body. Peace here refers in the church to the harmony between people, or even the harmony between nations, frankly. And the peace of Christ is to rule their hearts, like an umpire rules at a baseball game, and he has the final say about everything. Christ's peace is to rule and have the final say in our hearts, in all matters. You know, a couple drove down a country road for several miles, not saying a word, and an earlier discussion had led them to an argument, and neither of them wanted to concede their position. So as they passed by a barnyard of mules and goats and pigs, the husband asks sarcastically, relatives of yours? Yep, the wife said, in-laws. And be thankful. There's a lot of power in that little phrase. Multiple studies show that gratitude is a mindset that you have to cultivate over time. It assumes that there is someone to whom you must express that gratitude. And so by doing that, we look more and more like the creator in whose image we are created. Imago day. R.C. Lucas sums it all up this way as we look at this laundry list that Paul has given us to put on. God's original supreme purpose was to make man in his own image. In Christ, in the new creation, God is remaking men and women to be a part of a new human society. In the local church, we should be able to discern what it means to be a proper human being. Jesus alone can be the true man revealing the image of God. To be recreated in Christ and to be renewed constantly after God's image is to rediscover the road to true humanness. So let me ask you, how'd you do with the list Um, 
that Paul has put out. As a church, are we reflecting the image of God together? And what stood out for you? What shimmered for you that perhaps God is asking you to put on? Do you, is it compassion? Is it kindness? Humility? Meekness? Patience? Maybe it's forgiveness for someone? Because if it's patience, uh, Amy Brunk has a vacation Bible school table out there that as soon as the service is over, you can go ahead and go on up there and sign up because this week it's coming up and you can help and you can practice all you want. And by the way, it's going to rain on Tuesday, so you are really going to learn how to be patient. But what if we're struggling? Struggling to reflect Imago Day, Struggling to reflect the image of God. Well, there is hope. Paul goes on to help them understand how this is done. As we look at verse 16 of chapter 3, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Think for a minute about all of the things that you read in a day. Is the internet, blogs, maybe you like the newspaper, um, textbooks. No, it's summer. Um, we'll take that one out. Um, recipes, you might read directions, you might read labels. Why do we read these things? Why do we read them? You know, a lot of times I think we read them just for information. Like 90% of what we read is just to get some information. And if we read the Bible like that, you know, I, I can do that. I can look at this list of things that Paul tells me to put on, and I can go, yep, check, check, check. Got that. That was just information for me. But instead, we are not to read the Bible for information. We are supposed to read it for transformation. There's to be a change that is supposed to be made by the Holy Spirit of God as we read, as we think, as we meditate, and as we pray, and then live out what we know to be true. There's that conversation, like I talked about, that happens in our head when we're in the Word of God, and we're talking to the Spirit, and we're listening. Lord, what do you want me to do? Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Dwell, enoikio, it means to live in. It's the same connotation in the Old Testament in the tabernacle when God's cloud of presence, his Shekinah glory comes down into the Holy of Holies and God's spirit is dwelling among his people in the temple. And now today, God's Holy Spirit comes down and dwells within you, the church, in you, your body, because you are the Holy Spirit's dwelling place. He lives in you and therefore he is able to do a work in you and so as you read the bible or as you worship with songs that contain the word of god does your spirit agree with the holy spirit who is in you does what you're singing about god bring you joy are you comfortable looking at yourself in the mirror of god's word does the word of God agree with the life that you hold up to it? Paul concludes his thoughts on clothing with this summary. He says, whatever you do, whether it is word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, 
giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now in Paul's day, many philosophers taught that the spiritual world and the physical world were two separate entities and they really didn't have much to do with one another. And therefore, what you did in the body didn't affect your spirit. And Paul argues against this train of thought, encouraging believers to understand that they are a whole and integrated person and they cannot be separated. And what we do in the body matters to our spirit. It matters. It has eternal consequences. What we do as a Mago Day, as image bearers for God, has ripple effects in our world. And when we get it right, when we get it right, it changes everything in our world. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I recently interviewed Shinhee Chin, who's a member of our congregation, and she teaches art at Tabor College. And what you may not know about this humble servant and artist is that she's a highly recognized fabric artist and her works are literally shown all over the world. And when I interviewed her, she told me that she prefers, though, to create likenesses of nameless, voiceless, and forgotten people in history to give them life again and a name as God sees them. And so when I asked her about how she knew that she was an artist, she simply said, this is who I am. When I do art, I become myself. When I do art, I become myself. So let me ask you, what is it that when you do it, you become yourself? When you participate in it, you feel God's pleasure, as Eric Little did when he ran in the Olympics. As a person created in God's image and uniquely endowed with gifts and talents and disposition and purpose, what do you do that makes you feel like you're doing what the living God intended you to do? What is it that brings you his joy? What does it mean to be created in the image of God? To look in the mirror and see yourself transformed more and more into the image of your creator? More and more like Jesus so that you get to the point where you are more fully human? Christ in you the hope of glory. We bear his image. He has changed us, with the and he has charged us then with the responsibility to work with him through our process of sanctification by putting off the old self and putting on the new wardrobe. And we're to let the word dwell in us richly, to create a habitat in our lives where God's Holy Spirit is comfortable in our skin. 
and we do this together. Because we're the church, and we're living together for God's glory. And I think this is an amazing makeover story, don't you? Imago Day to Christ be the glory. You know, the story goes that after Moses would spend time with God, his face would glow so brightly that people begged him to put a veil over his face because it hurt their eyes literally to look at him. And the brightness would eventually fade until again Moses went to hang out with God in the tent of meeting and it would happen all over again. Well, this is us, the church in 2 Corinthians, in this verse, when Paul says to us, and we all, the church, we all, with unveiled face, continually seeing, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are progressively being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to even more glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Amen. Would you pray with me? Oh, Holy Spirit of God, we are grateful that you have um, dwelled within us and that you are changing us, Imago Day. You are changing us to be more and more like Christ. And so I just pray that even now um, you would bring to our mind the one or two things on the put-on list, Lord, that would just look amazing on us this week. And as we cooperate with your spirit, and as we walk into who we really are, may we see a change. May others see a change in us that is lasting. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.